Morning Sermon Audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. The internet is a wonderful thing, although I think many of you have perhaps also discovered it can be quite the distraction. Is it any wonder that they call the internet the worldwide web of, uh, waste of time? Um, if you go on the internet, don't do it now. I realize that many of you have your devices handy right at this point, but hopefully there's no Wi-Fi. If you go to a site called deathclock.com, you can find out how many days you have yet to live. In fact, down to the seconds. You enter your date of birth, your BMI, or your body mass index, your gender, and whether or not you're a smoker. And then you click, tell me my death clock, and it tells you on the next little window uh, your date of death. June 21st, 2042 is the day I'm supposed to die. It's some 780-something million seconds away. And I've just spent some of those seconds just now. But um, it's amazing, I have to live less than 75 years in all. So time's running, and fast. I think they should have a way to select your career. You know, maybe as a pastor I'd maybe get more years, or maybe I'd get fewer years. Not exactly sure. But I did try to adjust the BMI. You know, you, the BMI, you put in your, um, your height, you lie about your weight, and then, you know, it gives you your BMI. Um, but I did try to make some adjustments to my BMI, and um, if I were to gain 30 pounds from today, and thereby change my body mass index, I would lose just one year. Just one year, and I can eat all the cake I'd like. Isn't that pretty good? Or if I took up smoking, I would lose seven years of my life. Well, I adjusted the year to as though I were born in 1940, and the message came back, I'm sorry, but your time has expired. Have a nice day. <laughs> Do you ever think about life and death? I mean, after all, if life is only 75 years, and there's something eternal on the other side of death. Why do we focus so much on what's on this side of death? The 75 years we have in this life is just a small moment. If there truly is life after death, that is forever. And Easter is just around the corner, as many of you know, so I want to focus these next three weeks, I want to focus our attention again on what Easter means how it provides answers to the questions of life and death. So we're going to spend this week on the last, life of Je- uh, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, the week before Palm Sunday, Saturday to be exact, and then next Sunday, being Palm Sunday, we'll look at the crucifixion itself, which happens on Good Friday. And then, of course, on Easter Sunday, the 1st of April, we'll look at the resurrection and all of this time hoping to, find, to, to rediscover again the significance of this particular season and what it means for us in terms of our life and our death. Today we're going to see probably the most significant event that took place just prior to the week that Jesus spent uh, ministering to his disciples, serving them one last time at the Last Supper, and then also uh, hanging on the cross to die for their sins. And it's clear that as we look at the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, that this was a huge event. 
And it's significant that it comes right before Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. And it's clear to us as well as you read John chapter 11 that this event occurred and was recorded so that two things would be accomplished. One, that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus says that very specifically at the beginning of this chapter. And the second reason that this event happened and was recorded for their benefit and ours was that you may believe in Jesus as the resurrection and the life. So bear that in mind as we look at John chapter 11 today. I invite you to join with me in verse 17, but I'm going to just quickly review for you verses 1 through 16 uh, because it is so critical that we understand these events, and I would like to actually go through the whole chapter together, but as I've said already, time is fleeting, and we only have 786 million seconds left, at least in my life, and so we do have to end at some decent hour today. But so John chapter 11, between verse 1 through 16, Jesus was summoned to the village of Bethany because Lazarus, his friend, was sick. Now we're told about Lazarus's illness, and we're also told that Jesus chose to stay two days longer where he was. And he happened to be on the other side of the River Jordan from when Jer where Jerusalem is, and Bethany is just about two miles away from Jerusalem. Lazarus was sick, so his sisters Mary and Martha sent word of his sickness to Jesus. And John tells us that Mary had also been the very same Mary who had anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. But Jesus says to his disciples in these verses, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Okay, remember that was a, the major theme here in terms of what's going on in this last week is for God's Son to be glorified through it. And then John records both that Jesus had loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he chose to stay where he was two more days. And only after those two days, then Jesus says in verse 7, let us go back to Judea. Now he begins to initiate the travel to go back to uh, the area where Jerusalem and Bethany are. And the disciples, they understood this to be a dangerous thing. You see, Jesus had previously attempted, uh, had, uh, the, the Jews had previously attempted to stone Jesus for blasphemy. But they couldn't match his arguments. And so they tried to seize him, but they failed. So Jesus chose to stay on the other side the eastern side of the river Jordan and avoided Jerusalem. But now he says, we're going to Judea and his disciples knew it was dangerous. So he explained to them, don't be afraid. We're going there. And he knows that he is going to wake up Lazarus from his sleep. Now the disciples naturally thought Lazarus was sleeping a natural sleep. But Jesus made it plain to them that he meant that Lazarus was dead. And what he was about to do was to wake him up from the dead. Now, they had seen him heal a sick person before. In fact, they had seen him raise the dead. But Jesus would demonstrate that he not only had divine knowledge of what was about to take place, but that he could also raise a person from the dead who had been dead for four days. And he says to them that he was actually glad that he had not been there to heal Lazarus. Why? Why was he glad that, that he wasn't there to heal Lazarus for his sickness, from his sickness? Well, because raising him from the dead instead would serve the purpose of glorifying God's Son and would bring about greater faith in his disciples. It's interesting here that as they decide it's too dangerous to go, Thomas, not Peter, is the one that says, well, let's go then to Judea. You know, many of you remember Thomas as being the doubting Thomas, right? 
But here in this passage, in verse 16, it's Thomas that says, then let's go to Judea. Uh, willing to die, uh, even if it, or e willing to go there even if it meant dying there. So now let's read on in, Jan in uh, chapter, chapter 11, verse 17. Jesus has been summoned to Bethany. He's waited two days and then decided, now let's go. On his arrival, it says in verse 17, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. So let's take a look at this for a moment, that when Jesus arrives in Bethany, John provides for us a time frame and a distance indicator to set this conversation with Martha in context. John has indicated that um, this astounding fact that Lazarus had already been dead for four days. And if he had been in the tomb already for four days when Jesus arrived, then we can safely assume that with the travel time of the messengers, that Lazarus had died just shortly after those messengers had left. So while Lazarus was still sick, but John mentions the fact that many had come to grieve with the family and that Martha goes out first to meet Jesus. And then Martha expresses her regret that Jesus had not arrived sooner. But even if he had arrived soon, sooner, John would, uh, Lazarus would still have been dead at this time. He could not have arrived in time even if he had chosen not to linger those two extra days. Perhaps Martha was simply regretting that she hadn't called for Jesus much sooner, before the, the signs of death were knocking at the door. And it's interesting, too, that Martha has great faith. Martha expresses that he, she knows Jesus could have healed Lazarus had he just been there early enough. She also says that Jesus' uh, position as the Son of God, the intimacy, that, that anything that he asked the Father of would happen. And she did not have in mind, oh, but uh, so even though that she understood Jesus could do some things, it's evident later that she did not have in mind that Jesus could bring Lazarus from the dead. How do we know this? Well, because when Jesus says to remove the stone, Martha objects, but he's been dead. Surely there must be a smell. So Jesus encourages Martha to believe that Lazarus would be raised from the dead, and Jesus declares he will rise again but he wasn't specific as to the timing. And naturally, Martha expects, well, yes, Jesus was speaking about the resurrection of everyone at the end of the age, so yes, I believe that he will rise again. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world, which is a, a designation of the Messiah, the promised one, the one who would come uh, as God's messenger. So Martha and the disciples here who witnessed it had to learn that not only could Jesus say, your brother will rise again. But he also had to demonstrate the truth of it, something that he could only do because Lazarus had been dead long enough. 
See, God's actions and his timetable are suited not to our own priorities and wishes. That's the part we have to remember. They are suited to his purposes and his glory. And sometimes you and I believe that when God doesn't respond or when he delays to deal with our situation, that it's some kind of an indication that he really doesn't care about us when nothing could be further from the truth. Clearly, Jesus has an emotional affection for the family. His delay was not a lack of concern. The word that was sent to him was, the one you love is sick. They knew Jesus loved Lazarus, Lazarus and John expressed, expressly includes that when um, he was told about Lazarus' sickness, that he loved him, and yet he stayed two more days. And we also notice later that when he does arrive at the tomb, he weeps, and those observing say, it's remarkable how much he loved him. But Jesus doesn't react to the urgency of those who are around him. He always refers to the will and the plan of the Father for him. Take a few moments to consider the wedding at Cana. His own mother was frantic about having the place having run out of wine. But Jesus says to her, my time has not yet come. Later on in chapter 7 of the book of John, the Feast of Tabernacles was about to happen. Jesus' brothers said, go to Judea and show yourself to the world. But Jesus replied, the right time for me has not yet come. In both those cases, and right here in the story of Lazarus, Jesus replies, oh, excuse me, Jesus chose not to come upon the urgency of those who are requesting it. And oftentimes, you and I feel like we have to urge God to do something and do it without delay. Lord, I want to get better. Cure me today. God, if only you could vindicate my case and prove me right anytime soon, because it, right now it looks really bad for me. Or God, I can't wait for another day for you to answer my prayer request. How long do I have to suffer this ache or this pain or this hurt? And so when God delays, sometimes you and I are tempted to believe that he doesn't love us, he's not concerned, or maybe he's just too busy with someone else. But let's remember that God's actions and timetables are suited to his purposes and glory, not our priorities and wishes. And Mary and Martha, though they pleaded, or they, though they sent for Jesus, they could not have known that what God was going to do was demonstrate his unmistakable glory through his own son, Jesus. By letting Lazarus not only succumb to his illness, but even for him to wait four days in the tomb before being raised from the dead. God cares and loves his children. He has compassion for their sorrows. And that compassion does not mean that he will always spare us of life's difficulties. And I ask you today, what if God were to reveal to you how his purposes and his glory were just about to be revealed in your life through the hardship you're facing? Would you accept his will if he told you how he was going to use this event for his glory? Imagine him saying, my child, you will suffer persecution, but your life will inspire thousands all over the world so that they would continue proclaiming the gospel. Knowing that, would you continue? Or my daughter, the unreached tribes you're trying to reach will kill your husband, but your response of forgiveness will lead many of them to salvation and eternal life. Or my son, you will not survive this brain tumor, 
But after all, you have eternal life, and the organs that you have elected to donate will give another person the opportunity to live long enough that they might be able to finish that translation of the New Testament that's going to reach those people that are yet unreached. If God revealed those plans to you for your life, would you then be willing to accept it? Well, we do know that he has promised that all things work together for good to those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. So hasn't he then, in some way, already promised that to you? We have to remember that we have to exercise faith in this sovereign and wise God who we, who we love and who loves us deeply. That even in the midst of our sorrow, our hardship, and our difficulty, he is accomplishing something far greater than we could ever ask or imagine, and he's working it together for our good. And through his son Jesus, God shows us his sovereign timing because of how he waited until four days later for Lazarus to be resurrected. Let's continue then in the book of John chapter 11 to see what happens next. In verse 28, and after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Notice how Mary's faith is just the same as Martha's up until now. His understanding, or excuse me, her understanding was that Jesus could do something as long as Lazarus hadn't died yet. As long as he was still sick, but now that he'd been dead four days, to her it was too late. Neither of them had speculated even once, oh, Jesus is here now, now we can have Lazarus back from the dead. See, their understanding of Jesus' abilities and the finality of death is to be expected. But it also reveals that in their understanding, there was a limit to what was possible with Jesus. And I think that many of us also believe in a limited God. Some of us express a faith like Mary and Martha's that limits what's possible for God to do. We'll say things like, well, yes, some broken marriages can be healed, but those two people that we know, no, nothing could ever bring them to reconciliation to trust each other and once again love unconditionally. Or some people can learn to forgive as long as time has passed, but oh no, I will never be able to forgive the abuse that I suffered under. Or if only they had caught the disease earlier, then perhaps it could be treated. Now it's too late, she'll never recover. Or Lord, I know that you can melt a heart of stone, but can you really change a person who's a career criminal, an abuser, a warlord, a staunch Muslim? You know, sometimes God has to demonstrate his sovereign power to us simply by allowing us to reach the end of what we believe is at all possible, just so that we'll turn to him. And then in turning to him, he can show us what is actually possible for him. Think of how Mary reacted. That is not this Mary, but uh, Jesus' mother Mary. When she was told that she would be with child even though she'd never known a man. How can this be, she wondered. And the angel reminded her not only that, she will, that with God all things are possible, but also with her sister Elizabeth that uh, though she was barren, she was already in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. 
And remember when he explains to his disciples that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, naturally, they were wondering, well, then how can anyone be saved? How can any rich person enter the kingdom of God? But Jesus reminds them that with man, it is impossible for a camel to go through an eye of a needle, but with God, all things are possible. And sometimes you and I, too, have to experience God's power in us to forgive someone who's abused us, for us to finally believe that, yes, all things are possible. We have to see a healing miracle before our very eyes before we believe that miracles still happen today. And sometimes it, we have to go to the farthest reaches of what's financially possible for us. The last bill that we have to pay or the last meal that we have before we'll finally realize that, yes, God can even provide in my dire need. Well, Jesus was just about to completely change what Martha and Mary thought was possible. And I ask you today, does God need to challenge your understanding of what's possible? Because with God, there is no such thing as an incurable disease. With God, there's no such thing as impossible teenager. With God, there's no such thing as an insurmountable obstacle or an unbreakable addiction or an irreparable marriage or irreconcilable differences. Friends, the God whom you and I serve, the God of the Bible, the God who is the Father of Jesus the Christ, is unlimited. And as he's just about to show Mary and Martha, he is supremely sovereign, he has absolute authority, he is omnipotent in power, he is almighty in strength, and he asks them, do you believe this? Then Jesus gets very emotional. In verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who'd come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. It says here that he wept, he shed tears. He could not have been shedding tears for his friend because he knew that he was about to raise him from the dead. And so some of his weeping was interpreted as an indication that he loved Lazarus so deeply. But then again, there were others who blamed his death on Jesus being too late. The point I want to make here is that many of us tend to think of Jesus as being unemotional. Think of all the pictures you've seen of Jesus or the icons or the drawings of Jesus. What image does it portray of him? Doesn't it tend to portray him as a stoic? You know, the Stoics were from the school of Zeno. They were taught that people should be free from passion, unmoved by joy or grief. But this is far from the reality in the New Testament, the portrait we see of Jesus. He was passionate when he drove away the money changers out of the temple. He rejoiced when the 72 came back from their ministry throughout towns. He was angered and deeply distressed by their stubborn hearts. He loved his disciples to the full extent, it says in chapter 13, demonstrating it as he washed his feet. And remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he even said to his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Jesus got emotional. He never was fearful or frustrated, though, because he was always in control. But the New Testament portrayal of Jesus is that he experienced temptation, he was weary, he slept, he could not be in more than one place at a time. He was emotionally human and he sympathized with those who sorrowed. Somehow many of us think of God as being unemotional. Even though he knows our future, 
He still sympathizes with our sorrows and griefs, our temptations and fears. So if you are going through a, a trial and you are emotionally spent, realize that God knows what that's like. If you're grieving over a loss of a loved one or sorrowful over some failure of yours, Jesus has sorrowed. If you're in distress or hurting on the inside because something or someone did something or said something to you, or if you're angered by sin or injustice or the persecution of godly people, remember that Jesus, too, got emotional over some things. He's felt those emotions, and he can sympathize with us. He loves us deeply. He wants to bear the weight of our pain with us. He wants us to let go of those fears and the frustrations and let him take control, just as he's about to show here. And let's look in verse 38 how he does take control. Verse 38 says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. So you see again, Jesus, first of all, being deeply moved. John notes that the tomb was a cave with a stone closing the opening, and he commands that the stone be removed. After all, Lazarus had to come out somehow, didn't he? Martha, of course, pr protested, thinking that the body's decomposing. There must certainly be a smell. But then he reminds Martha of his previous words. He made it clear that what was about to happen was to reveal the glory of God. And Jesus' ministry and his miracles were always intended to bring glory to God. The whole activity of Jesus was to bring the glory of God through the Son for us to see and believe in him. And this raising of Lazarus, Lazarus excuse me, is arguably one of the most significant revelations of all. Try to imagine you being there, knowing that Lazarus has been in there for four days, and hearing Jesus' prayer and hearing him call out, Lazarus, come out. They remove the stone. Jesus prays visibly and audibly for the benefit of those present. He makes the point that his father and he are always in communication and that he was sent by the father, and what he was about to do was in direct cooperation with his father. And he calls out to Lazarus in a loud voice to come out. Now, think about it. No matter how loudly you speak, the dead do not hear you. He spoke for the benefit of those who are around. He didn't have to command Lazarus to come out. I mean, if Lazarus stirred and woke up, surely don't you think he would want to come out? I think so. He did it for the benefit of those around so that they would be convinced that the only reason Lazarus came to life again and came out was because Jesus was there to command him to do it. That there would be no doubt among those who were there whose power was exercised, and Jesus demonstrated through his prayer that his power came from the Heavenly Father. Those who believe will see the glory of God, he said. 
Now I ask you, what is your impossible situation today? What is your insurmountable obstacle? What is your impregnable wall? Who is your invincible army? God is unlimited. What will you believe him for today? And the key for us to understand here is what it is that we are supposed to believe about Jesus, that he is the Christ, that he is the son of God sent into the world, and that by believing in him, we can have eternal life. That even though we may die, yet shall we live. Friends, this is the message of Easter. This is what we should be remembering at this time of the, of the year. Jesus knew this was his opportunity to demonstrate his sovereignty, not only in his timing, but also in his power. He prophesied before the disciples and him went that this sickness is not to end in death. He knew that he would go and bring glory to God and to himself by waking Lazarus from the sleep of death. And he knew that what would happen would be to establish their faith in him as the Son of God. He made this very bold declaration, I am the resurrection and the life. You can't make that uh, declaration unless you can also prove that you can raise the dead back to life. And not only did he prove it with Lazarus, he did it when he laid down his own life, only to take it up again. I have authority to lay it down, he claimed, and authority to take it up again. And friends, because of the certainty of Jesus' own resurrection, you and I can be also certain that when we die a physical death in Christ, we shall be made alive again. That's why Jesus says he will live even though he dies. And at the same time, he can say he will never die because there will come a death, but that death is simply the gateway to eternal life in Christ on the other side of death. He saves us from our sin by bearing our sins on the cross, by suffering there, dying, and then paying for the penalty of our sins. And he says, he who believes in me will live even though he dies, meaning that we will live once again and never die. Yes, we all have to experience physical death. And I know my clock is not eternal in this life. It is winding down. But I do know that I've been born again and born of the Spirit so that when I do reach the end of June 21st, 2042, if this is correct, that is, then I know that I will rise again in Christ to live with him forever. So the question that Jesus poses to Martha is a question that he poses to each one of us. Do you believe this? Because friends, when it comes to matters of life and death, shouldn't we entrust ourselves to the one who could bring the dead to life again? The one who has power over life and death. The one who's in charge of all time, all the time. And this is what Easter reminds us of, that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. You know, in uh, Cyprus, in the city of Larnaca, where we visited, there is a church there that's an ancient church. It is the church of St. Lazarus. Because the Orthodox tradition is that after Lazarus was raised from the dead, that at some point he had to flee Judea. And he ended up in Cyprus, in Larnaca. Back then it wasn't called Larnaca. It was called Kidion. And uh, that sometime later, Paul and Barnabas visiting Cyprus appointed him the bishop of Cyprus. And there is that ancient church there, which we saw. And you can go into the crypt where there is Lazarus's second tomb. It is empty, not because he was raised from the dead, but because 
his bones were collected and now put in a very fancy box where you can actually look through the glass and see parts of his bones and I guess his cranium and the people do touch it and they pray over it and those kinds of things. Now, it's an orthodox tradition, so I'm not absolutely certain that, that w those are the bones of Lazarus. But it is interesting that last week I was there and only kind of stumbled upon, I didn't know that this was the tradition, that in Cyprus, Lazarus was buried again. That that was his second and final resting place. I took some pictures, but I didn't uh, show them here for you, but you can look on the internet. There is, after all, something called the internet, and you'll find the pictures there. But as we approach Easter, and remembering that this coming Saturday is called St. Lazarus Saturday, uh, to celebrate this event that we were looking at today, as though it took place the day before Palm Sunday. And in Larnaca, at least, his icon is paraded through town while, uh, while they celebrate the fact that Lazarus was the first bishop of Cyprus. But let us remember that in matters of life and death, we ought to place our faith in the one who has power over life and death, in Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we bow before you, considering again what Jesus did that day when Lazarus was raised from the dead, we humbly acknowledge that you are God and that with you nothing is impossible, but that all things are possible. And Lord, we ask you first to forgive us of our small faith, to think that yes, you can do some things, but just not everything. And sometimes we grieve at the loss of our loved ones. But Lord, help us to have faith, to know that those who die in Christ will once again live. And I pray also, Lord, that if there's anyone here who has yet to proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and has yet to receive eternal life and to be born again, I pray, Lord, that you convict them even now of their sinfulness and especially to demonstrate to them your grace and your mercy to show them that because of Jesus' cross, they can be forgiven, and by believing in him, they can have eternal life. Lord, we thank you that death has no hold over us anymore. No matter what the clock says or how much time we have left on this earth, that death is but a gateway to eternal life with you. And those of us who believe that have this hope as an anchor for our soul. Thank you, Lord, that this season, we can remember the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBC. CPH. Thank you for listening.